I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And we're the hosts of Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. On Built for Change, we're talking to business leaders from every corner of the world that are harnessing change to reinvent the future of their business. We're discussing ideas like the importance of ethical AI or how productivity soars when companies truly listen to what their employees value. These are insights that leaders need to know to stay ahead. So subscribe to Built for Change wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends, number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram, and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy, and of course, our guest, and number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at aol at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me aol. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Daniel Rowland, who is an Oscar-winning, Grammy-nominated audio engineer and producer who serves as the head of strategy with Lander, as well as a professor of music technology and industry. With all this experience, you can bet that Daniel has a unique and academic perspective about the audio engineering industry, both now and in the future. Also, Daniel's work can be seen and heard with an incredible array of artists and creators, including Pixar, the Star Wars franchise, Michelle Obama, Gwen Stefani, Weezer, Lady Gaga, and tons more. All right, let's do this. Daniel Rowland, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be here, Al. Happy to have you here. So I'm curious. You have quite the background in audio engineering, education, and you did go to work for Lander one year in as a like serious, serious audio engineer. What were your opinions on Lander before you joined and what did you want to do with it? It's probably changed a bit over the years, you know, because I at back then I was like brand new to being working on music technology. That's not something I was always kind of the freelance producer, audio engineer guy, right? You know, I was uh, being a mastering engineer. You think I would like hate, passionately hate the concept, right, of Lander? That's why I'm curious. Yeah, sure, and I, and I understand why people 
Well, well, I'm sure we're going to dive into this today because I think it's a really interesting topic, but I kind of looked at it like this and, you know, being a professor, I think helped my perspective on this to take a bit of a, a broader, higher level overview of what technology like Lander can be used for, where it's like, listen, like I've spent God knows how many thousands of hours to before I was even a decent mastering engineer. So I know that a lot of people aren't going to be able to take that path and learn that. Okay. So then my expectation mm-hmm. is that they're going to hire me. Right. So you're, you're, I expect you, you, you kid who doesn't have any money and is, is putting out songs that you're, you know, as you're just kind of discovering music and, and getting into producing, you're either going to hire me or you're going to do it yourself or you're not going to master. And those are your three choices. Right. And that, that just seems like such an old school, like the music industry isn't what it, it was 30 years ago. Right. There's more music being made, Jesus, today than was probably made in an entire year in 1980. Right. So, we have to have tools that help support people in their creative journey so that they stick with music and they continue to make more music. And, you know, hopefully you give them something back that sounds better than what they put in. That was kind of my the mentality behind it. I never, ever have said that Lander should be a replacement for a mastering engineer. And what we find, you know, and I think this is proven now that Lander's almost 10 years old, has proven to be the case where... So many of our users kind of learned what mastering even was through Lander, and a lot of them still use Lander. A lot of them grew to do their own mastering, and a lot of them ended up hiring mastering engineers. I mean, if you go on our site now, and this wasn't the case when we first started, we've got dozens and dozens of pro mastering engineers you can just, you know, hire for between 50 and, you know, a couple hundred bucks to master music if you don't want to use the Lander engine. So we don't really care at this point how you go about it as long as you get, you know, music back that sounds sounds good, you know, and makes you kind of want to push forward and be more creative. I think that a lot of the hate that I saw in the earlier years, I think came from people who were afraid that their jobs were going to get replaced. Of course. By a computer, which is a legitimate concern. But if you actually play it out, it's really not a legitimate concern. At URM, we get the same thing. We had, when we first started, we had a lot of producers and mixers hating us for educating people on how to, <laughs> really? how to do it for real because they were afraid that we were going to train their competition. Gotcha. And I guess if you suck, maybe that's true. But for the great mixers in metal and the great producers, the same ones that were around when we started are doing just as well, if not better now. You know? So we did, not, we did not destroy their careers. Um, I think that... A lot of people didn't understand that this isn't, it wasn't meant for them. It was meant for what you said. And if a musician. It's meant for people that they'll never even exactly. talk to. It's meant for people that will never hire them, that are never going to show up on their radar, but might a percentage of those people, if they can grow and evolve their career and their their talent and their music, might then go hire those engineers and not to cut you off. But that's what we found is like, yep. if you can help empower and widen the funnel of creators, when people have the choice to go create in Roblox and do video stuff. And if we can get them into music, right, and make it easier for them to do that, a percentage of them come in and feed the rest of the industry as they grow and evolve and become professionals. And that's what happened. I mean, I master more music right now than I did 10 years ago. You know, I don't think that's gone. It certainly hasn't gone away for anybody. If it affects anybody, it probably does affect that mid-tier of engineer who's charging like $30 a track, kind of in their bedroom, maybe kind of knows what they're doing, you know, on Craigslist. Like, yes, maybe AI mastering takes some work away from them, but for professionals, it doesn't, and I don't think it ever will. I think it's the same thing with AI art, which, you know, in this past year has become a thing. Oof. It's, it's crazy good. I mean, 
it's scary looking. However, tell me if you've experienced this, but I feel like I can now spot it like immediately. I know when I'm looking at AI art, like it's no longer impressive to me because now I know when I see a mid journey image. And so my thoughts are, yes, bad artists might be in trouble, but good ones are not. They're not going to be because first of all, the Midjourney is not going to export layers. So if you actually need to do work, right, it's going to be real tough to work with one of those images. But I just don't see how it will affect people with their own thing going on. What I see is that it will affect people that are if it's between getting a Midjourney image for free or for the ten dollar subscription versus paying someone that's not that great a few hundred dollars well a band is going to obviously get the mid-journey image but i don't think it's going to affect the artists that are really really great i think it's a similar sort of thing right so far and this could change for me the moral of the story is that this technology is going to force humans who have creative jobs whether it means being an audio engineer, artist, musician, it's going to force the bar to go higher than we've ever seen. Already, musicians are better than they've ever been, in my opinion. Like, there's been great musicians all throughout the ages. However, I think objectively, at least on a technical level, just like in athletics, musicians are better now than they've ever been. And I think that it's it's because of... A, bunch of different things happening at the same time, like the access to YouTube, access to home recording, all that put together. But so with the AI tech really coming into its own and it actually sounding and looking good, you're going to have a generation of kids who grew up with that as the bar. And so like the way that drummers got a lot better is they grew up, like this younger generation grew up hearing drums that were edited and replaced and thought that that's what drums sound like. So that's how they learned how to play like that and they could do things that the previous generation couldn't. I think it's going to raise the bar by a lot and people are going to be faced, I think, in a much more extreme way with the choice of uh, do I use a human or not for this? And uh, it's going to be a tougher decision. Though, like I was saying, I think the, the drum decision that exists now is a good window into what that's going to be like because most people don't record real drums anymore. Like, no, it's pretty rare. Yep, I just did a session last night. It was uh, not real drums. It sounds pretty damn good, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, exactly. I mean, a great drummer is still great, but there's not that many of them. And so we can already see that in music. Most producers I know, and I mean like great producers who would always prefer to have real drums will defer to the fake drums if they need to, or they decide it's better. Of course, man. And even if it's real drums, they're still triggering stuff and still layering samples and still doing all the hyper-realistic stuff that we all do, you know? Exactly. It's potentially scary, but it's also very exciting, I think. Yeah, and it's even been interesting to watch what's happened, and you could apply this to, to the music side of things or to art or what have you. When 
it, it, when you establish a new baseline, right, from which people are working from. So like now I can just generate whatever art I want. So I have all this amazing art that I kind of contributed something to. And then I take that and I reinterpret it and I go, go in different directions. And, you know, just watching what people do, iterating on top of this new baseline, I think, you know, that's a really interesting avenue for creativity combined with the AI component. So, you know, kids are doing amazing things with this stuff already. And like you said, or will continue to once this is kind of established as is the norm now and the expectation of, you know, anybody can generate art. Okay, well, then what do you do with that to take it beyond what the AI did? And I think that's where this all heads. And I'm sure that on the lander side, you had to have been surprised at some point by how good it was starting to get. Two things, by how good it got and by what people did with it. You know, I think... Uh, tech, building any tech, and I, you know, have, have done a quite a bit of that now, even outside of the AI space. It's always the most intriguing thing is to see how people use it in ways you didn't expect that they would use it. But the, uh, but certainly on the lander side of things, you know, it takes year for this kind of stuff, man. It takes years and years and years to amass enough data for the actual AI to make a decision even comparable to what a human would would make. And it still doesn't, you know. The other part about the AI space is people. And companies, I think I've said this before, are largely responsible for this. They overmarket what the AI can actually do, and that instills fear in people that it's going to take their jobs. When, you know, Lander, it's not hyperbole, it can do great mastering if it gets a good mix. It can. Is it perfect every time? No, but now you can go in and customize and make changes and personalize it to you. That's great. But if you give me something that has, has got pops and clicks and has got all sorts of problematic resonances and is a train wreck of a mix, there is no AI that is going to be able to fix that, right? That, that, that type of surgical precision and nuance, we're so far away from dealing with that. Isotope, too, like no one's there. So, yeah, there's always you know, a, a need for that, regardless of whether you can you know, cover a, the general population with mastering or with AI composition or with mixing tools or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, if you give it a perfect set of inputs, but still the fact that it can make. It's still impressive. Yeah. It's still amazing. It's still, I have to say, and it, you know, that, that came about for us, not because we were like training on data sets and, you know, that, that wasn't what made Lander kind of be what it is, which is the, you know, the market leader in that space. It's that we figured out, we made a long-term commitment to hire a bunch of mastering engineers and have them do thousands. That's how I got in the company as a mastering engineer, thousands of masters over the past seven years, tens of thousands, hundreds, I don't even know how many masters we've done. And then every knob that we would turn, right, we would record that and the AI would look at it and look at what it had done and learn from that. So we might even have two or three engineers master the same song so it would get kind of a general idea. And that's what made its decision making so nuanced relative to anything else. You know, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but we put there's nobody else who put in that much in you know, tens of millions of dollars and in time into doing that. So that's interesting to me using mastering engineers as the as the data, which makes perfect sense. I mean, how how else would you do it? Well, otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah, you're, you're comparing a mix to a master. You're trying to extract what mastering was. You can only get so far with that. Yeah, I guess the question then is how do you decide that the decisions the human made are <laughs> the right decisions? That, I mean, I guess across as many as many masters as you do, trends will emerge, but... What's interesting for me is uh, you have to really trust the people that are doing those masters in that case. Yeah, that's why a handful of people participated in that and a lot of vetting mm -hmm. and a lot of, yeah. So no, you're totally right. Otherwise you get bad data, but that's also one reason to, if you can involve multiple people doing the same 
one, right, is you can kind of mitigate that to some degree. But, you know, it's like anything else. You have experts do expert work, right? And that's what the what the AI should be trained on. So, yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, when we're talking about art, there's, quote unquote, no objective way to measure it. So um, basically, it's your tastes in mastering what you've decided is good. And so that you have to have a lot of trust in your own tastes and really feel good that you've picked the right people because they're going to be what, or they have been what the computer then becomes, which is pretty amazing. What we found out about that, and not really surprisingly, was, well, and you kind of alluded to this, I, five mastering engineers or mixing or whatever, producers could take a song and interpret it five different ways. And that goes for any stage of the production process, right? So you're right. It's a lot. It's still largely taste based. And that's why we eventually felt the need. You know, Lander used to be like you couldn't make many settings like you would put your song up there. You could choose like low, medium and high for loudness. And there's a couple other things. And that was it. And, you know, we got, of course, we got a lot of feedback. People were like, oh, this is cool. But I wanted to I wanted to master my hip hop song like a rock song. I wanted to master my metal song like a trap. You know, they wanted different approaches or they wanted. So have now having built in all these different if people want to go down the rabbit hole and they want to revise their mix and deal with sibilance and bass and stereo imaging, they can actually do that in a conversational way with the AI that uh, will make those adjustments. So for people that, that want that, it's there because it didn't. Otherwise, you're right. It's it's fairly limited as far as the scope of what it can do if you don't allow people to have some input based upon their taste. It seems to me like that was where it was going to go. It had to go in that direction. Yeah. I just couldn't see it becoming what it's become without eventually going in that direction. No, because AI is not that perfect. You know, it's not, that's the marketing thing, right? It's not like this one trick deal where you just, everything becomes amazing because you ran it through AI. You have to have yeah, the human input. And the audio engineers are the ones who fought for that. We're the ones like, people need to choose to like big make the master be yes. what they would want it within thresholds. So like it's, it's interesting, right? When you look at how the tech actually works, like you can't just go in and say, I want to boost my bass by 20 dB or something like that. You get some choices within thresholds based upon the input. So you're still, you've still got training wheels on, right? There's still bumpers there when you're bowling, so you can't mess it up. But it gives you tolerances basically that, that will still kind of fall within what's generally acceptable, but to, to your taste. On a different note, I'm curious because we have a lot of listeners who are not professional audio engineers, but would like to be, and they work in the real world and, or, you know, or they're students or whatever. But uh, point is, that's not what they do full time. They're not there yet. You're someone who did that, does that. And then uh, you've always, it seems like you've always done multiple things, but I guess what I'm wondering is how do you balance, like you're saying, you just did a session last night. How are you balancing doing your audio work with uh, with Lander and also anything else you do? How do you keep up? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. You know, my, I was lucky. I didn't plan at all for my career to do kind of go in the direction that it's gone, where I basically do, I'll just lead in with this and we'll talk about kind of time management. I do three things effectively. I do Education. So you mentioned this already. Mm -hmm. I've been a college professor teaching music production for 15 years now. But to continue to do that, while I did all my other stuff, I moved to be a remote professor. So I teach remotely now in Nashville, though I live in L.A. Um, I used to teach in person, but I was touring all the time and couldn't do it. So that means I can still do that. Right. So kind of figuring out how to stuff that I love to do, how do I need to adjust it so it'll still fit into kind of the limited hours that we all have in a week. Um, so I do teaching. I do, which I, I love probably more than anything else. 
I still am on the creative side of the industry. So I still, I don't do, I don't produce much anymore because it just takes too much time to do records, but I do tons of, tons of mastering, obviously on a lot of major projects and a lot of Atmos mixing these days. So I built an Atmos uh, facility in Santa Monica with my partner, Matt Geiler, and we do tons of that stuff. And then, um, that's another good example. Like I had to figure out, okay, well, I can't still produce full records. I can't go tour and stuff anymore, but how do I still be involved in the industry and work on stuff that I love and have it fit into that pie, you know? And so that's what I did. I kind of pivoted my career to things that were low touch, high reward on the creative side of things. And then music technology, which is probably what takes up the bulk of my time now. And Lander, of course, is the, I've been one of the heads of that company for for a long time now. And then I work with a lot of other companies. I just love music technology. I think I love music technology almost more than I love music, which is crazy these days. I look at working with startups and working with other companies doing amazing stuff the same way I looked at working with bands back in the day. We are, you know, trying to produce and make connections and, and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So I do a lot of different stuff, which is amazing when it comes to, you know, income and diversification and all that kind of stuff. And I see other people, you know, COVID happens and people can't tour anymore and all this other stuff, but I've kind of diversified myself to, to not be super impacted regardless of what happens in the market, at least for the moment, fingers crossed. But it does mean that I work more than most people do. Right. So I probably yeah. generally work 80 to 100 hours a week. Not surprised. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of people that do that. Right. So it's not just me, but it's, you know, that that becomes challenging. You know, if, if you're listening to this podcast when you're 20 years old, great, go do that <laughs> for a decade. <laughs> but there's a point where you have to kind of start to pick and choose and say no and, and kind of restructure things. I just had a kid three months ago, so I've had my first child. So I'm, I'm in that stage of my career. Where I'm like, okay, where's the high value stuff? And for me, in the long story short, it gives me, it's, it actually has been a, a blessing in disguise where I can then pass opportunities on to other people that, that are in the position I was in 10 or 15 years ago, as opposed to trying to take everything for myself and feeling like coming from this position of lack where I can't ever say no. No, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as a way to kind of give other people opportunities. And it's allowed me to kind of let go of some stuff that, that uh, otherwise would have taken up my fairly limited time. But I'm glad you mentioned that on average you're putting in the 80 to 100 hours because I think that the music industry or audio industry requires some sort of an entrepreneurial spark to really navigate. It really does. And so people with entrepreneurial sparks tend to do a lot of uh, reading about that stuff. And then there's some poisonous ideas out there like that uh, you can do it all in four hours a week. Or I know that that's not what the actual book is about, but I've met a lot of people who think that you can get to a point where you can just start to chill out. And uh, I don't know anyone. <laughs> Maybe you can. I haven't met that person yet. <laughs> I have not met that person. I've not. I've not met a single person in music, any part of music, who's doing it at a high level, who is not working harder now than they were the year before, and the year before that, before that. It's just how it goes. And you already spoke to this, and we're heading into a time, and we're already there, where technology is becoming simpler to use. AI stuff is involved. It's empowering a ton of people to to create art and music and whatever. So again, how are you, if you still want to make a living in that world, right, you have to hustle, I think, potentially even harder and stay abreast of technology and understand how you can kind of get in where you fit in with some of this new tech. I always, on this kind of a little bit of a tangent, but on the same topic, I always tell people, you know, when you see tech that you want to kind of shake your fist at and tell to get the hell off your lawn, like step back and think about how you could make use of that. Otherwise, you're going to end up being that person who, 
you know, I remember mm-hmm. listening to people bitch constantly about the MP3 when the MP3 came out and like how it destroyed the industry and they just kind of wanted to give up on music when they could have. It sucked, but like you got to, you know, bake with the ingredients that are in front of you. You know what I mean? It's like, how can you navigate the industry understanding where it's going? And I think if people kind of turn a blind eye to that, sometimes they can get left behind and it doesn't matter, you know, how many hours a week you work, then it doesn't, it's hard to keep up. So that's a bit of a tangent, but like I, the thing that's allowed me... It's important, though. Yeah, the thing that's allowed me to be fair, fairly successful, not to you know sound like a dick, is is really staying up on trends. And that doesn't mean everybody needs to do that. But for me, it's, it's really worked. And embracing things like Lander back when AI was super... I mean, people didn't understand what mastering was, much less AI. And now it's kind of everywhere. But being an early adopter of some of that stuff and feeling, putting myself in the position of a shepherd of it as opposed to somebody who wants it to go away, right? Because I'm like, this is going to exist. So either people who have a good heart can try to lead it in a direction that's going to be good for creators in the industry, or you can let other people do it and who the hell knows where it's going to go. And that's with tech, it always comes down to who's, it's not the technology, it's who is who made it and what are they trying to do with it? And that to me is more important. Than uh, yeah, than the the ones and zeros themselves. I totally agree, and I think it is human nature. Like I think it's perfectly natural to see the new tech that's going to force you to change how you do things, especially if you've gotten comfortable doing things a certain way. It's working for you, or at least you think it's working for you. It doesn't matter if it actually is or isn't. You think it's working for you, and then along comes this technology that is gonna cause you to have to get uncomfortable. It's a natural reaction to be negative towards it. For me as well. I think that that's just how we're wired. So we actually have to remind ourselves to not be that way and to embrace it and to figure out how to use it. And we have to. Yeah. And it's okay to be negative about it too. Like as long as you kind of check yourself and really assess, like, is this just a knee jerk reaction? How do I really feel about it? Is it just because it challenges my status quo? Like, cause there's stuff, dude, I was freaking out. I was having a conversation with a developer last night about the chat GPT three stuff and how some, what the end game on some of this could be. And I'm I'm like, okay, I love new technology, but crap, this is starting to get a little bit scary. So it doesn't mean you have to love It's okay to hate Lander. It's okay to not like other digital technology or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. As long as you kind of, you know, check in with yourself and make sure that that's coming from like a logically reasoned place and not just an emotional reaction. And maybe that's okay as well. But um, we all feel that way about different things, right? And different people in different industries are affected in different ways by by automation and a lot of new technology that comes out. So it's, it's whatever. It's a... I totally get it. So I never like, you know, hammer anybody who who hates something that I like or, you know, whatever. It's kind of to each their own. But I do think there's opportunities. If you can kind of get past that, you'll find that there's, you know, things you can navigate that may take you out of your comfort zone, but ultimately could be beneficial in ways you didn't expect. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep, it's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And we're the hosts of Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. On Built for Change, we're talking to business leaders from every corner of the world that are harnessing change to reinvent the future of their business. We're discussing ideas like the importance of ethical AI or how productivity soars when companies truly listen to what their employees value. These are insights that leaders need to know to stay ahead. So subscribe to Built for Change wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I can tell you that with getting URM off the ground, back before URM, I was a full-time producer. And it was starting to annoy me that bands, little by little, they would only want drums, vocals, and a mix. The, you know, Then it's just drums and a mix. And they started doing stuff on their own because you know, M-Boxes existed. And I mean, these are signed bands. The quality of the guitar tracks that they'd send were just horrific. <sighs> and I was noticing... This was this was like you know ten years ago you know the 2008 to 2013 14 years I was just noticing that I was starting to get more and more pissed off at like home recording because it was it was messing with the quality of the work I was trying to do but then I really thought about it and I was think and I came to the conclusion look there is this is like trying to stand up in a tsunami like there is <laughs> nothing I can do about this this is this is the direction this is going. Like, there's not going to be less of this in the future. There's going to be more of this in the future. And there is, I better get comfortable with it. So the reason, well, one of the reasons, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I decided to go all out with URM is because I figured nobody, even even the schools that are on their game, aren't going to teach people how to 
produce metal properly. They're just not like it's no. the one. Now they're starting to a little bit, but like it's the genre that just the black sheep genre always has been. And it might be one of the most complicated forms of music to produce and mix well. All these incredibly skilled producers and engineers, their their skills are going to die with them because at traditional institutions, you have all the knowledge that has been built up over generations and how to uh, how to produce, you know, pop, how to produce classical, all that. But metal was just going to, I felt like it was just going to keep on degrading because nobody was spreading the knowledge and the new way of doing things was getting worse because of home recording. Somebody had to just embrace it and realize, look, this is how it's going to go. So may as well help them get better at it. Exactly. Right. Like how else do you look at it? If you really want to, like, if your goal is to have better music out in the world and that's your goal, whether you participate in it or you help other people get to that point. Yeah. Which that's, at least that's my take on the mu- on music. I just want people making music and I want them to, you know, make better sounding music that people love and other people love to make and inspire other people to make music. So I'll do whatever that, you know, I'll f- get in wherever I fit in, in that equation. Yeah. You want to see it continue to improve. It matters. Cause if it doesn't, I mean, I feel like people who were very scared of music disappearing um, or becoming less important in people's lives, well, there might be some truth to it becoming less important, but having less quality isn't going to help. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> no. That's definitely, if you're worried about music taking less of a role in people's lives versus video games or whatever else, then having lower quality audio and music isn't a isn't a step in the right direction. No. Yeah. So got to do what you can. What I do love about AI mastering and AI tools um, is kind of what you said at the beginning. But when I think about a band who doesn't have a budget or I think about people working on their own who don't know anybody yet or, you know, they're just at that phase or right. a songwriter who maybe they, maybe they do have a budget, but they're just writing and they want to show it to somebody. Nowadays, stuff needs to sound pretty good. Like this stuff from the way people did stuff back in the old days where you could send a demo that sounded like garbage and it was fine, that that doesn't really fly anymore. Things have to be at a standard. No, there's no reason why it shouldn't sound good, right? Like everyone knows that you have the tools to make music sound good, whether you're doing everything manually or you're using some AI solution or whatever. So there's there's no excuse, uh, yeah, at this point for that that to be the case, you know, and on the mastering thing, like I I mentioned this earlier and I guess I should have talked more about this. I was saying that, you know, it's interesting to see how people have used the lander mastering side, at least of the company, the automated mastering side, you know, there's people who wouldn't have only released their music via lander. There's Mm -hmm. people who have never used it all every day, but have never released a song mastered by lander. Right. So they're doing all their demos. They're doing all their mix referencing as they, they mix a song, they run it through lander. They hear what mastering is going to do to their song or won't do because mastering is not magic, right. I'm going to fix your mix AI or human. I mean, yeah. So, and then they'll eventually go with a, a real mastering engineer or what have you. So, you know, we have people who only master like sound effects for film through it or just their drum loops or vocal vocals. Like it's crazy how people have kind of hacked it to, to do something that they really love. And maybe it's on a full mix and maybe it's not, which is, yeah, which is crazy. And we, you know, we ended up, you know, building a company around that mastering tool that we're mastering now is like, I even mentioned this earlier. We don't, if you use the lander mastering engine, great. If you go hire a mastering engineer from us, great, because we also do distribution and samples and we make our own plugins and we have collaboration tools. So you can work DAW to DAW and project management, all that stuff. Right. So we became something that was 
over the years much broader as kind of an end to end, you know, and it just speaks to not to be long winded. It speaks to what you and I've been chatting about. It's like we wanted to build something that if I'm a new creator coming into the music industry, I see all this amazing stuff. And it doesn't matter what genre of music you make, but you see like, you know, dis- distribution, you got DistroKid and TuneCore who are all awesome. Lander does distribution. Mm-hmm. You've got samples if you're into samples. You got Splice, you have that that's amazing. You've got collaborations, you've got plugins from Slate, Native, and Isotope and all these companies, which if you're a professional, I love all that stuff. But if you're coming into the industry, you're like, holy crap, I have to have a subscription to every one of those things and I have to pick which one, you know, it's so fragmented. Um, so our mission became to just provide everything under one roof, including AI mastering as a part of that, so that there was a turnkey solution for creators coming in so they didn't feel so overwhelmed, you know, and would continually come back to make music and then go, you know, add on other third-party stuff that, that is awesome as well. And that's kind of where we ended up sitting. That seems like a very logical evolution. I'm actually curious about the collaboration tools. Oh, it's they're free. So anyone can go use them. You don't have to pay for them. I wasn't aware of these. I do think that remote, I mean, remote is the future, obviously. So is it, um, is it, I mean, I guess, could you tell me a little bit about it? that. So there's two ways it works. Basically, we've got two things, one of which is like a simple video chat, like Zoom effectively, mm-hmm. but kind of built for musicians. So there's a plugin that goes in your DAW, Mac PC, whatever, um, VST, AUAX, and that allows you to stream audio from your DAW into the video chat to one or a million people, whatever. So people, I use it for mastering reviews with, with people so they can kind of hear what's going on and we can kind of lock in the last 10% of something, but people use it for songwriting and all sorts of other stuff. It's not really meant for jamming but it's it's more for like you know songwriting mixing that kind of stuff but the the other piece of that is a whole cloud-based project management and we just released a mobile app for this actually you can go get as well where similar to think about it kind of like dropbox but built specifically for music right where you can share revisions of things and stems and comment you can add video messages you can actually record your daw as a video message in the output so people can hear what you're and see what you're talking about so just a way to work with other people on projects kind of synchronously or asynchronously And what's cool is it ties into our, we have a professional network I mentioned of like mastering engineers and mix engineers, thousands of musicians. You know, you want a metal drummer, you want somebody to do a music video for you, like it's all there. And you can actually invite those people directly into these projects. If you're like, shit, I need somebody to mix this track or I need, I want to pay somebody 25 bucks to tell me if my mix sucks or what sucks about it. You can do that and they can come right in, give you some advice and then they go out and they lose their permissions on the project. So there's a lot to it. And then now it works on your phone. So all that stuff, uh, for the most part, is free. So anybody's welcome to go to the website and check it out. Forgive me if I mention a competitor, but please. The plugin, the one, the collaboration plugin, yep, the yep. one, is that kind of like the Audio Movers thing? Is it similar? To audio movers? Yeah, I love. I use audio movers all the time. Yeah, okay. so it's think of it like audio movers. It's it's like audio movers with video chat. Okay, added to it, um, and then you can also take control of other people's screens, and I can like you know grab your screen so you I can hear audio. So when I do remote production stuff, I'll take control of somebody else's screen do stuff for them because I'm hearing the high quality audio coming back to me, right? So I can hear mm-hmm. what I'm I'm doing on their computer, or I'll teach that way. But uh, audio movers is is awesome in that they can do more than what our plugin can do. In other words, they can do, I believe, like 5.1 and 7.1 streams and like full 24-bit 44K mm-hmm. stuff that we don't do. Ours is slightly compressed. But so they're diff- they're good. They have, they're good in different areas, but both are cool. Yeah. Can't hate on audio movers. Okay. So not totally different, but different applications. Different applications, yeah. Man, that sounds very, very interesting because 
I really think that just from what I'm seeing um, from all of our students, from all of our guests, all of our instructors, is that your physical location is mattering less and less and less. It still matters. I mean, if you want to move to L.A. or Nashville or whatever, cool. But if you're in the middle of Indonesia, it's not quite as uh, bad as it used to be. No, especially if you're savvy. See, that's why we see such an exodus from some of what were kind of the music centers at the moment, right? Because people don't have to spend a fortune to live in L.A. necessarily. You know, for some some things you need to be there for clearly, right? But but you're not estranged from opportunity if you're not in one of those musical hotspots. What do you uh, say to people who, you know, I'm sure you get hit up for advice all the time. When people say, I want to be a producer, I live in the middle of nowhere, what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. I get that one a lot. Yeah. Right. It's like, I get the, yeah, I know. It's like, like, yeah. How do you answer that? Like hustle, <laughs> you know, I always tell, you know, especially if it's going to be a producer. It's like, what are you willing to do? Well, yeah, well, it's true though. It's like, okay, so let's just take, cause you, you could be artist, producer, you know, engineer, whatever. We'll take producer. It's like, well, if you're going to be a producer, the quality of what you do is at least somewhat contingent upon the artists that you've chosen to work with or you can access. Right. So, you know, making sure you find people that, whether they're near you or not near you, that you legitimately believe could actually be something with your, um, you know, if with your talents included in that and just be willing. I mean, I, I hate saying this because it's not the case for everybody, but my experience was that the typical work for free, sleep on couches, like really be willing to lose everything or feel like you may have just sacrificed five years of your life with, with no income and all this stuff to, to get ahead in the industry. Not everybody needs to do that. So I, I definitely want to tell, people, to tell people, just go work for free. But for me, anytime I saw an opportunity, like an artist that I was like, oh, that artist is like a tier above where I'm at skill-wise, but I really want to work with them. I would do anything to work with that artist, mm -hmm. including paying my own money for gear and do and not even getting paid, but actually investing in that artist's career, which was my career. And it paid off for me, it paid off, but it's, it doesn't pay off for everybody. You really have to bet on yourself because nobody else is. And I know that's a cliche. This stuff has paid off for me big time. Like, yep. I totally agree with you. It actually pisses me off when I see <laughs> older multi-platinum producers who oh, are like man. in their 50s or 60s giving this advice and saying, never work for free. I would never work yeah. for free. Don't do it, blah, blah, blah. Oh. And it's like, bro, you've been a multimillionaire longer than I've been alive. You drive a Maserati. You are so far detached from what yeah. the daily struggle is of a producer who's 18 years old or 20 years old. And you probably did stuff for free too. Yeah, or you were a grunt-ass intern in some studio making coffee, like, the you know, maybe making two, $3 an hour, whatever. That's effectively working for free, and those opportunities don't exist anymore, you know? So it's like complete loss of perspective on how wide and competitive the modern landscape is and where the opportunities lie. And again, you certainly don't need to work for free, but it's it's the best, you know, currency that you have when you have no experience, right? Or little experience is your, you know, blood, sweat and tears, man. And that's, the you know, if you come in asking for something, you're rarely going to get anything. Think about it in terms of risk. When I get this question from people who don't have, good credits or anything like that. How do I, how do I do this for real? How do I get bigger bands, et cetera? It's like, well, think about it. Why would a bigger band trust you? Like, or why would the band's label trust you? Like that's a lot of risk in terms of 
money and time? Like, why, why would they? Like, could you answer that? And oftentimes they're like, I don't know. I was like, would you trust you? Like, say you had like a few tens of thousands of a budget for, to make a record. Would you trust you? Would you go to you? And oftentimes their answer is no. It's like, why not? It's like, well, cause I could go to this other person who works with all the bands I love uh, for that kind of money. It's like, exactly. So why would they pick you? You have to find a way to make them trust you. And how are you going to do that? Well, yeah, I mean, and it's what we just said. You probably need to take a step down a tier from the band, that band, and work with some other bands to show Mm -hmm. that you have a track record of delivering. And hey, maybe one of those lower tier bands does take off if you choose wisely. And there's your, you know, whether you ride with them or not, that's some, that's a calling card you can use for everything else. And shit, I still do so much work on spec now, right? So much, I probably did five spec Atmos mixes or masters or whatever this week for artists that I want to work with. Like I say, I will do this for free. You can take this mix and releases. I do not care. That's awesome. I just want to be in, be involved. I'm a fan of this artist. Do it all, all the time. I still work for free constantly. And it, does it always work out? Absolutely not. Because the industry is full of amazing cats who also, by the way, are often willing to do that to try to get their foot in the door with artists that they love. It's not just, once you get to a certain, now there's obviously, I'm not at the top, top of the industry on the mixing and mastering side of things, but I work on a lot of awesome stuff that I love, you don't get to a point unless you're like the 0.01% where you never have to ask for anything and all the work just comes to you. And it just, you know, that never really happens, right? You also, you always have to be hustling a little bit and out there, you know, getting work. It's, it's, it's never a, not a thing. No, it, it really is never not a thing. Um, I think it's, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, I feel like uh, if I wanted to do that nowadays, I would be happy to mix for free. If I decided that I'm no longer doing what I'm doing or doing it on top of, but, and I want to mix for a living, like that's my decision. Better believe I'm going to be doing some free work just to get going. Why not? Absolutely. If your stuff really is as good as you think it is, then, you know, mixing is subjective, but you know, if people really love what you're going to do, you won't be mixing for, you know, that one mix that you did for free, hopefully, you know, seven times out of 10 will lead you working on an album, will lead you doing other things, right? So exactly, yeah, it's, it's a hard advice to give people, but the music industry, like a lot of entertainment industries, as everybody knows here, people think it's sexy to get into, into which means it's cutthroat as hell. And, you know, you gotta be willing to go whatever. Think about what the other person is doing. What extra step have they taken to get those gigs that maybe I haven't been willing to take? And I always try to think about it that way, within reason, of course. And being savvy, man, social media has helped me a ton in that regard. I'm a terrible networker, terrible. If I go into a room full of people or I go to a concert or I go to whatever, like as far as like work in the room, I'm not that that person. But I can work social media and it really has, has allowed me to make connections with people that I would have never been able to get to normally. And that's for everybody to consider, like, no, you can't go on LinkedIn and get to pick your metal band or pick your hip hop artist, right? But you can get to their manager, you can get to their publisher, you can get to people who they're front of house engineer, you can get to people on, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, pick your platform. You know, if you're strategic about the way you approach people and you understand kind of this, the structure that are around labels and bands, you can start to get on people's radar, you know, and be persistent but not annoying. And opportunities will come out of that. I've gotten more opportunities that I can count, probably more from social media than I've gotten from any kind of real person interaction or any real life in-person interaction, excuse me. In general, through, I guess, connections you made on 
through social media. How long did you have to establish a relationship for before it turned into an opportunity? That's a really good question. I mean, lame answer is it varies. Like sometimes if, because, you know, the time that, the time that's right for you is not necessarily the timing that's right for somebody else, yep. right? So I might hit somebody right when they need something that I'm able to provide for them, right? And if I get, if I catch them in that moment, maybe I'm not the perfect person, the person they would have thought of, but I'm the person that's there in that moment. And then, then you could, you could get something, you know, catch a tiger by the tail and, and get something quicker. Other times, years, years. Mm-hmm. I've got some stuff going on right now. Mix, I swear, this happened this week. Some mixes that I submitted that I just, uh, on spec, right? I just, artists I really wanted to work with. And I just thought they must have thought the mixes sucked because I never heard back from them, right? And I, it's stuff, something I established on, on LinkedIn in this case with a label. And no, it's not, it was just bad timing for them. It's not that I did anything wrong. It's not that it's none of that, right? I didn't come back to them and, and harass them and be like, I'll do it. I just kind of let it, I, I plant as many seeds as I can plant. And then I tend to walk away from them, understanding that some of them are going to grow and some of them aren't. And this one came back to me and I've got an entire catalog now of an artist for probably hundreds. I don't even know how many thousands of dollars this is going to be worth to work on that I, I thought was dead in the water. But it's just one of those things. I planted a seed. I'm, I'm not emotionally attached to it. I move on to the next thing. Um, and yeah, so long, that's a long-winded ass answer to your question. But like, you just can't care how long it takes. You just got to go and start making connections and think about, you know, follow other people on social media, see what they're interested in, comment on. I, mean, I got a whole strategy with my, I've said this before to people, but on LinkedIn specifically, which no one thinks of as a platform for music, right? I've got a whole strategy with my students about how they should approach that platform and how they don't just link to people they, they like and they comment on people's stuff and then they eventually link to them and they link to the people around them. And you can, you can develop a circle of this kind of subconscious circle of trust with somebody that you've never met if you really know how to kind of tr- go after them. I hate to say go after them, but on social media kind of frame yourself. It really is effective. And it's not something I think a lot of producers, audio engineers, artists really think about. You know, they think about posting something and they, that kind of stuff, but there's a lot of more subtle ways to go about getting to the people that you would love to work with and then kind of the traditional route. I digress. That's a whole other conversation, but but don't sleep on social media. I'd love to have that conversation sometime. The thing that I really love about what you just said was the you can't care. And the reason I love that is because I view it as two types of networking, objective-oriented or open-ended. And I've always thought that open-ended is better. Objective-oriented works sometimes, especially if you already have a relationship. Like if you have a relationship or if uh, you have a reputation but then the timing has to be just right. It's just one of those things, open-ended, just trying to build a relationship. For me, at least, that's where most of the great things that have happened for me have been based off of just making relationships and eventually things happen. A hundred percent. You're never going to push somebody to do something that you want that they're not ready to do, you know, unless, no matter who you are in the industry, right? So yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, Daniel, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure and I'm glad we actually got to do it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. That was an awesome discussion. Thank you. All right, then another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVY URM audio at URM Academy. And of course, 
tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.